Well, again, welcome to Alger Assembly of God. Welcome to our study, our series entitled Rebuild. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We are getting there. I know for some of you, if you've been faithful with us here in person, faithful watching or listening online, your thought is, Pastor, when are you ever going to finish with this book? It's December. Well, we, are, uh, we are getting there. Uh, thankful to have some of our guests and some of our missionaries over these past number of weeks, which has extended this a little bit. Today, this is our 11th part, and we're going to be looking at two chapters worth to kind of help us uh, finish up the book by next week. We're going to be looking at chapters 11 and 12. They can be rather lengthy, as some of these portions are. So we're going to be looking at uh, just bits and pieces, kind of looking at some of the main themes. But as we've gone through this process, what have we seen? We've seen Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king. We say this every week. That's what he was. He heard about Jerusalem. He heard about the home that had been burned and broken, walls and gates that were destroyed, had favor of the king, came back to Jerusalem, uh, worked with the people. They rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the gates. And along with some of the physical rebuilding, now we've seen some of the spiritual rebuilding. Over these last number of weeks, certainly they've encountered opposition. Certainly there's been some conflict, but we've We've seen them as they heard the word of God, as they were worshiping together. And last week, we saw that they made a number of commitments. In the, in the process of hearing God's word being read and taught and proclaimed, they realized there are some things we're not doing. And so they said, God, we are going to make some commitments. That was chapter 10. So today we come to chapters 11 and 12, uh, looking to get close to finishing up this book. But Jerusalem as a city had not had that completed wall around it for probably 150 years. But with the walls, with the gates complete, it was secure. But now there needed to be some people in it. Walls and gates broken down. There were not the people that were living there. In fact, back just to remind you from Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, we read this. The city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So they had done a lot of work. The, the walls, the gates were restored and rebuilt, but there were not people there. There were not... Uh, the people who were populating and living there. So certainly this rebuild process, Nehemiah was leading the way. Certainly in this rebuild process, the people were working together. Certainly in this rebuild process, walls and gates needed to be restored. But in chapters 11 and 12, we see a handful of some further ingredients here in the rebuild. So start with me if you would. Nehemiah chapter 11, our first ingredient today in the rebuild is this, willing participation. Willing participation. Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Let me stop right here. Because some of you right now, your minds just went to Las Vegas. You're saying, man, they're casting lots. What are they gambling, Pastor Mark? I, I'm going to go to Vegas, and I'll just say, Nehemiah chapter 11, I'm casting lots about what I'm going to do. What, what numbers do I play? Not quite what they were doing here. 
This was not the game of chance. They, they were casting lots as they sectioned the people into sets of ten. They would cast a lot, and one out of those ten, in a sense, were assigned to go back to the city of Jerusalem to live here. Now, in a sense, this was like dice that might be thrown or cast. Lots were used in the Old Testament, used in the New Testament as a, a part of determining the, the voice of God, the will of God, the plan of God. So it was not about getting rich. It was not about the get-rich-quick scheme. It was, God, what do you desire to do? And they would pray, and they would cast lots, trusting and believing God's will to be taken place. Maybe you think back and fast forward through into the New Testament. After the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And remember Judas, who was one of the 12 disciples who had betrayed him. Uh, the disciples said, we've got to select another one to take his place. What did they do? Did, did they hire a, a headhunting firm? Uh, did they you know, go to Indeed.com? So they, they prayerfully selected two individuals, and then they what? They cast lots in the book of Acts. Proverbs chapter 16, 33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So when lots were cast, when these dies were thrown, the prayer was not about, God, this is for me, make me rich. This was, God, here are, here are a couple of people. Here are some decisions that need to be made. We are praying for your will. And in this case, they needed and desired individuals to populate Jerusalem. So they would be numbered into 10, the lot would be cast, and one set of families out of every 10 would be selected. Now, let's just toss this over to you. As you read verses 1 and 2, scholars interpret this one of two ways. So let me try to present them to you. You might call it a voluntary draft, or you could call it a draft plus volunteers. We'll see which, which way you might think. When it says in verse 2 that the people commended all who volunteered, that, that word from uh, the Hebrew word means to impel or to incite from within. In other words, there's that internal thought that says, I'm going to volunteer, I'm willing, pick me. That, that thought of volunteering. Here's the, the two thoughts some might say. Some might look at this and say, verse 1 was a draft, you're casting lots and you're selecting one, of, one out of every ten. But then you read verse 2, and it says the people commended all who volunteered. So some say verse 1 is the draft. Verse 2 is volunteer. And they say, hey, who wants to go? And some said yes, and they commended all who volunteered, all who chose to go. But then there's just as many other biblical scholars who would say, verse 1 indicated this draft, this casting of lots, but of the individuals who were selected, it was the ones whose God's hearts had already been working on, and in a sense, they were willing to go, volunteering to go, as they were drafted. It's interesting. Either way, they were going to repopulate Jerusalem. Now stop and think. Have you ever had a situation in your life when you had a choice, and maybe you were leaning towards A over B? For whatever reason. But over time, your heart kind of shifted. Your heart kind of changed. And what seemed to be your initial thoughts in A, now you said, no, I don't want A. I'm leaning towards B. 
Some scholars would look, this, uh, would look to this to say that God had been working upon people's hearts, that as the die, as the lots were cast, those who were selected, God was working upon their hearts, nudging upon their hearts, that as they were selected, in a sense, they were volunteering at the same time. Whether it's a voluntary draft or volunteering plus a draft, what we see in the next number of verses, and we won't be able to take time to look at that, but from chapter 1, you see residents and descendants of Judah. Uh, into verse 7, descendants of Benjamin. Verse 10, from the priests. Verse uh, 15, from the Levites down to the gatekeepers. All the way through chapter 11, chapter 12, we see a lot of individuals whose names were mentioned. Drafted and or volunteering. We see a lot of names of Judah and Benjamin, the two southernmost tribes tribes there of the southern kingdom. Now, can you imagine what this would be? Stepping out of your comfort zone into something new. How many of you are creatures of habit, and you don't like new things? So when someone tries to nudge you, push you, shove you, you give them the look. Can you imagine individuals who, and, and this is certainly not in today's day and age and culture, uh, the, the opportunity we have in, in driving and vehicles, certainly in a lot of the larger cities, there's tremendous commute times from home to work, but even in our areas, though we're not a large metropolis, there are some people who travel many minutes to and from work. They're not having vehicles getting back and forth. This is places where they live. So here are individuals who are from a lot of surrounding towns and villages who are not living in Jerusalem, who are now about to live in Jerusalem. So imagine that you are uprooting everything about yourself, whatever your standard is right now, where you live right now, what your house is right now, what you're used to right now, and imagine you're moving maybe across the state to another city, another town, another village, and starting afresh and anew. Here's the individuals that were going to be doing this in Jerusalem. There was a willing heart of participation. Now, for you and I, when we come and we surrender our hearts and our lives to Jesus, that is willing as well. Amen? We are not forced to surrender our heart and our life to Jesus Christ. We hopefully are to willingly surrender, willingly choose and say, God, I desire you in my life. That's, first of all, the willing participation is responding to him in salvation. But beyond that, God's desiring to use you and I in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our churches, in our communities. Are we willing to be used of God? Sometimes that means kind of getting nudged out of our comfort zones, nudged perhaps to consider something new, nudged perhaps to, uh, to try something different, to try something for the first time. But verses 1 and 2, we see there's a heart of willing participation. God is working upon their hearts. God's stirring their hearts. Yes, there's this draft. Yes, they are casting lots. But yes, people are volunteering. And yes, people are commending them or saying, thank you. How many of you, maybe you would prefer to be the nine instead of the one so you can just pat the people on the back who are trying something new so that you can get back to the same old, same old? There's probably some who might enjoy doing that. 
But we see verse 1 and 2 here in chapter 11. One of the, the first things is this sense of willing participation. Rebuilding, renewing, refreshing. Are we willing to participate in what God has in store for us? No doubt, over the, the seasons of your life, and, and certainly the, the older we get, there's more and more seasons that we've been through. But no doubt you have seen that God has nudged and challenged, maybe spoken to your heart over the years to get involved in something in your community, get involved in something in the church, get involved in something in the home, get involved in something in the job, in the school, in the workplace. There's a sense of willing participation. God, I don't know all the details, but I'm down for what you have in store for me. In a sense, that's what the people were saying. God, we're going to be starting brand new. I don't know exactly. I'm leaving behind some of the, the, the familiar. I'm leaving behind the, the home and the people, perhaps all of that stuff. And we're going to move here to Jerusalem. We're going to populate this city. And this is going to be a place where you're living and moving and dwelling. God, I'm ready. I'm ready for what you have in store for me. I don't know what that might look like for each of you, what God might be kind of nudging or prompting your heart to consider, but there is willing participation, the heart and the attitude of willing participation that we see in Nehemiah chapter 11. So again, throughout 11 and into chapter 12, you're going to see lots and lots of names. You might be thankful. I'm a little thankful that I'm not mentioning all of the names because, listen, we can get tongue-tied on those. But chapter 11, all the way into chapter 12, reading about the priests and all of the families and Levites, we, we get our way all the way into the middle and end of chapter 12. And we find this, another ingredient here. Besides willing participation is this. I believe another ingredient is joyful celebration. How many of you love to be joyful? How many of you love to celebrate? Or, or maybe in, in shorter words, just simply say, party. I enjoy a good, solid celebration, right? Check it out. Chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived, and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. They were getting ready to celebrate. They were getting ready to dedicate. The walls completed. Gates are completed. People are moving in. Now, this project is finished. How many of you know when a project is finished, it's a good thing to celebrate? How many of you, you find a lot of little ways to celebrate even before the project is finished, right? You're putting something together. Maybe you've got a, one of those do-it-yourself pieces of furniture, and uh, maybe you just get, like, the first page done, and so you go, you know, have a little scoop of ice cream to celebrate that you finished one page. Then you keep going. You find a few more steps. You, you, know, you put a few more screws or nuts or bolts in place. You turn the page. <laughs> Time to celebrate. Sometimes people don't need too much of a nudge 
to celebrate. But what we're seeing here, the people were excited. They were joyfully celebrating and dedicating what God had done. There was musical instruments, cymbals, harps, lyres, uh, and some future verses there in chapter 12, trumpets. It's kind of like a, a worship band, almost a, a worship here. Uh, songs of thanksgiving and the music. In the next number of verses, we read about two various choirs that are giving thanks on behalf of the people. Verses 31 to 39 tells us that the leaders and the two choirs went up on the top of the wall, and one choir went one way, the other choir went the other way. Now, if you've been in church for a while, or if you've been in church uh, years ago, how many of you have heard or seen or participated in what's called the Jericho March? People marching around and, and, you know, proclaiming the goodness of God as you march around a sanctuary. In a sense, it's kind of what these people were doing. It's certainly not Jericho. But they got up on top of the wall. One choir is going one direction. The other choir is going the other direction. They got all these musical instruments. And on the top of the wall, it's kind of an important thing. It's a visual reminder of God's faithfulness. How many of you, there, there's certain things that kind of remind you of the faithfulness of God? Whether it's something that takes place in the church, something that takes place in your home. You know, for me, just more recently, every time coming to the sanctuary I see these chairs, I think about the faithfulness and the blessing of God in the tens of thousands of dollars of free chairs that we were blessed with. Seeing that is a reminder. For some of you, maybe it's, it's something in the home. It's, it's the, the vehicle that God has provided. It's this, it's that, it's healing. It's, it's a reminder visually. Here's what God has done. He's a good God. We sung about his goodness, his greatness. So it's a visual reminder of his faithfulness as they're marching across the walls. It's a witness that the people are seeing that it's God who had done the work. Now, yes, they were taking part in it. They had worked hard. They spent a lot of time rebuilding walls, rebuilding the gates. But God had blessed and provided for them. And as well, you might call that a little bit of a symbolic act. They're stepping out in faith, stepping on these walls in one direction on the other. Certainly in a number of places in the Word of God, uh, Joshua is one where he says, hey, everywhere that you step or place your foot is, is the blessing, the land that I will give. So in different parts of Scripture, people are walking. Remember, certainly the walking around Jericho, calling that and claiming that as the promise of God. And so here are these choirs joyfully celebrating. One choir going one way, the other choir going the other way on the wall. In a future verse there, it says that the sound of rejoicing was heard far away. How many of you have been to a large stadium environment? Certainly a local stadium, maybe a, you know, a basketball game, high school football game is, is big time. But amplify that quite a bit with maybe a college or professional game. Thousands of people. Maybe even... Either in the shoe or that place up north, it's over 100,000 people together. And if you've been to one of those games, or certainly at the least you've seen it on television, isn't it incredible when the wave of people are celebrating? You love it when your team is doing good. 
And certainly that large place with all of these people get really, really quiet when your team's not doing so well. But maybe you've been there when that touchdown is scored. Or in a baseball game when that home run is hit. Or in a basketball game with that last second shot. And you hear the cheers and the roar of the crowd. Think about in this last year plus, certainly in 2020 with covid a lot of the sporting events were altered, right? I mean, the basketball, NBA, they all went down to the Disney area. They had some makeshift uh, uh, NBA basketball courts. No guests, no viewers, just the teams. And if you watched any of that, I, I watched it, it was a, a really interesting. You're, you're used to people cheering and shouting and screaming, and all you hear is the squeak of shoes on the court. People are joyfully celebrating. Some of you do that in your own homes, right? I know. I do some myself. Some days more than others. I'll admit. Joyfully celebrating. Here are the people. The walls are done. The, the gates are done. The people are getting ready to move in. They are willingly volunteering. They're, they're being drafted as well. And now they're joyfully celebrating. Let's get the choirs ready. Let's get the musicians ready. And they could hear the sound from a long ways away. Isn't it good to celebrate? Is it all right to celebrate God and have a little fun understanding who he is and what he's done? I don't know about you. I enjoy coming to the house of God. I, I celebrate. We do some fun things as well. That doesn't mean that this is going to be stand-up comedy. doesn't mean that this is a production. But we enjoy having some fun in God's house. We've done some interesting things in God's house. We've played some games in God's house. We've had some illustrated sermons here in God's house. Some of you, years ago, were here when I preached an entire message from the treadmill. I think I did about three miles while I preached preached in character, preached in a number of different costumes, etc. Enjoy having fun in God's house. Enjoy having some laughs in God's house. Enjoy celebrating. Why? I'm excited. I'm thankful for what God has done in my life. And when we come to God's house, yes, we are serious about him, but we can celebrate who he is and what he's done. So a part of this rebuild, a part of this refreshing process, they are joyfully celebrating. God, thank you so much. We have worked together. The walls are done. The gates are done. The people are moving in. We've got musicians. We've got choirs. And now we're looking around and we're seeing all that you have helped us to do. God, we are joyfully celebrating. Now, does that mean that we've got to come in and like high five and like bounce into each other like some of the football players do. Doesn't mean we have to, but doesn't mean we can't. I mean, imagine if, if we had a little more joy, a little more celebration about some of the things that God's done in our hearts and in our lives, even throughout the week, to celebrate what he's done. See, this this aspect of worship and celebration, it's, it's not just what we do, but how we do it. They were wholeheartedly worshiping. This wasn't, let's just be honest, 
As you read these verses, they were not doing the golf clap. You're aware of the golf clap, right? You might not be a golfer. You might not have watched golf, but golf is kind of the quiet and, and a little bit more subdued sport. And so you might have a lot of people around when a, a good putt or a good hit is made. Kind of polite, gentle clapping. Golf clap. When we see what God has done, we don't just need to do the golf clap. We can be excited and joyous and celebrate. And if that means giving a high five, if that means kind of jumping around a little bit, if that means expressing a heart of love and thankfulness to God, we can. But they were saying, God, we are thankful for what you are doing. So a couple ingredients that we're seeing in chapters 11 and 12. There's a willing participation. God, I'm ready for what you have in store. There's joyful celebration. I rejoice in the goodness of God. Number three, third ingredient is complete purity. Check it out in chapter 12, verse 30. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Now, uh, the purification and many of the things that were assigned and and set aside in the Old Testament, purification of washing yourselves, washing the clothing, sacrificing animals, uh, perhaps uh, applying hyssop and, and blood, sprinkling with some of the blood of the sacrifices. But we hear that word purity, and sometimes it doesn't have the greatest connotation in today's day and age and culture. Because if someone is seeking purity, they tend to be an oddball. If you're looking at television, if you're looking at movies, if you're looking at mainstream media, anyone seeking to be found pure and following after God, there must be something wrong with them. They're, they're a little loony, a little kooky up here. I mean, why would you willingly be pure and not do all these fun things over here? So when it comes to purity, many times people think about the goody two-shoes kind of person. But they were looking to be pure and be found pure in God's sight. Well, how do we purify ourselves? We certainly don't do the blood of bulls and goats and sacrifices. The New Testament is clear on that. We don't necessarily need to sprinkle blood up against the walls. Scripture that comes to mind is one that we use quite a lot. One that I've shared quite a bit. 1 John 1.9 says what? If we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just, and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, you and I can't do it ourselves. I mean, there's a lot of things we can scrub. There's a lot of things we can clean when it comes to walls, carpets, Sinks, toilets, bathtubs, counters, we can clean a lot of things. But we're not the ones that can do the cleaning. We've got to go to God and say, God, cleanse me. God, forgive me. God, purify me. We confess our sins. We admit that we've messed up. We admit that we've sinned. God, as I read your word, there's things in here. I still struggle with, so God, cleanse me. God, forgive me. They were asking God to purify. No matter how hard we try, we can't do it in and of ourselves. 
Now, maybe you look at your life. Maybe you look at your past. Whether you're here in person, you're watching or listening online, and you'd say, you don't know what I've done. I've done a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of bad things in my past. How in the world can I get clean from all of that stuff? Same way. Same way. God's able to do it. Whether it's a handful of sins or a whole bucket full of sins, if we confess, he's faithful. He's just, he will forgive us. He's the one who's able to do that. Isaiah, we read this, Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your skins, skins, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. In other words, though you've messed up big time, you're going to be purified big time if you confess, if you come to God. And so it says, the priests and Levites had purified themselves. Then they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Listen, as leaders, we ought to be pure. Now, sometimes people just look and say, oh, purity is for pastors. You're right. Purity is for pastors. But purity is not just for pastors. Pastors, leaders, we are to be pure. The priests, the Levites, spiritual leaders, they were purifying themselves. You and I, as leaders, ought to make sure we're going to God on a regular basis to say, God, will you cleanse me? Forgive me. I confess my sins to you. It's not just about the leaders. It says, then they purified the people. You might be sitting here, you're in person, you're watching or listening, and you might say, I'm just a, I'm not a. I just show up, but I'm not a pastor. I'm not in leadership. I just watch on the video. I just listen online. I just listen to the podcast. I mean, I'm not in leadership. Listen, leaders ought to be pure, but people ought to be pure as well. They were all seeking to be found pure in the sight of God. So they purified the people, and then they ended up as they purified the gates and the wall. The things that they had just got done doing for God, they said, God, we want to make sure that these are pure. Let's make sure that we don't just get involved in doing a bunch of stuff and say, well, God, bless what I'm doing. God, help me to, to seek after you, to follow after you, and make sure that I am pure. See, what's a whole lot easier and sometimes a whole lot more fun is pointing out everybody else's sins. You ever done that? I know I, I said that kind of smilingly, and, and instantly everybody's face just dropped like, I'm not looking at you. Which means you've probably played that game along with me at some point. Let's be honest. At some point in your life, you've probably seen somebody else, and in some fashion, you've said, ha they've messed up. They've sinned. I might be doing a little better than they are. It's pretty easy to kind of get the finger out and to point somebody else out who's sinning and point the fact that, you know what, they need to get right with God. And it's true that they do. But how about you? 
How about me? There is, there is no one here that is exempt from this topic of purity. The priests and Levites, these spiritual leaders, but then the people as well, as then the projects that they were doing, wanting to make sure they were pure and holy in God's sight. So there was a willing participation as they were looking to do this rebuild program. There was joyful celebration to say, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. There was purity that was sought. And finally, as we close out the chapter, chapter 12, there was personal sacrifice. It says, on that day they offered great sacrifices. Verse 43, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Again, kind of like one of those stadiums that you're away from and you drive up, you hear the, the crowd, you hear the band. It could be heard far away. Verse 44, at that same time, men were appointed to be in charge of storerooms for contributions, first fruits and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by law for priests and Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. Verse 47. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for musicians and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portions for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. There was personal sacrifice, but what's interesting is the personal sacrifice was done cheerfully and joyfully as they were celebrating. It's almost as if they were laughing and cheering and high-fiving one another as they were saying, listen, there is great sacrifice to what we've done, but we are so excited to see God's place, this city of Jerusalem, set up and prepared. We covered a little bit about that last week when we talked about uh, setting aside some of the aspect of giving part of God's plan. The scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver. And it sure seems like that's what was taking place here. Not only had they spent a lot of time and effort in giving of themselves, giving of their work, giving of their time in rebuilding walls, rebuilding gates, Last week, we saw they made some commitments to make sure that they were doing things and giving according to God's plan. Today, now they're celebrating, and now they are sacrificing, but it was not a detriment. It was a joy. Now, I don't know. As you give, if you've got an offering envelope and you drop it into the little plate or the tray, I don't know how you do it. For me personally, I enjoy doing that. God, I thank you that I'm able to return back to you. It's a joy to give. The heart of these people, they were giving and sacrificing, but doing so joyfully. We can do that with whatever that amount might be. I look back as mom and dad were, were teaching me as, as a young child, and maybe you know, I had kind of a home little bank. I had an envelope in uh, the bottom drawer of the bureau, and it was Mark's envelope, and if I earned $10 or received, you know, $10 or something from a birthday, we'd put $10 in the envelope, and we'd take $1 out, and I'd bring that dollar, put it in an envelope, and I'd give it to church. Give it to the Lord. Got a little bit older as a teenager, mowed some lawns, 
shoveled some snow. I earned 10 bucks or 20 bucks or 30 bucks doing a couple things. Same thing, I'd, I put that 10 or 20 or 30 in, take out one or two or three, and joyfully be able to give. Not grudgingly say, why do I got to give three? But joyfully say, God, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for the health. Thank you for the provision of a neighbor who needs my help. Without that, I wouldn't have the opportunity of making the 10 or the 20 or the 30. So whether it was the one, whether it was the two, whether it was the three, I, I did so with a, a thankful heart. Into high school years as a senior, I've, I've told you before, I worked McDonald's, got sweaty and greasy, made, you know, four or five dollars an hour. So working during school, maybe I made 50, 60, 70, 80 dollars perhaps during the week. So now I could give five or six or seven or eight dollars as a tithe to the Lord. And I go to Bible college and I worked in Holiday Inn, I worked in the restaurant, I was a, a busboy, worked into room service and completely blessed of God. I mean, thinking back to it, it, it it's kind of crazy now, what you we're seeing how all of the, the prices and the hourly wages are raising, 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 and we look at 12 or 13 or 15 dollars, I was blessed to make that 25 years ago in college, incredible blessing of God. I was blessed with an hourly wage as a bus person. But when I, get, when I went to room service, they were treated like a server. Servers typically make like $2 an hour because they receive tips. But I was kind of grandfathered in. It was the blessing of God upon my life. They paid me the full wages of a bus boy, but allowed me then to earn the wages of room service. So I made the 425 an hour. Got bumped up, I think, to 440. And every order, they automatically added gratuity. They would add 17% to anything we sold. I got 15. The restaurant got two. And then on top of that, when I delivered them their meal and I give them the bill to sign, there's a place there for a tip. Now, either because they didn't read or I would prefer to think it was because of my excellent service, I would many times get double-tipped and make an hourly wage that I shouldn't have made as a room server, plus a guaranteed 15% of anything I sold, upsell on desserts, plus tips on top of that. So the $50, $60, $70 I might have made during McDonald's in a week would often become two and three and four hundred dollars working part-time during school and it was a joy to be able to bring 20 or 30 or 40 dollars to the lord in tithe and then i'd add some missions on top of that and then i'd round it up maybe to the next 50 or to the next uh, next hundred i would try to give generously and it seemed like the more i would generously give the more blessed i would be it's crazy that as a college student, uh, I recently came across some of my giving statements. I was like, I gave thousands of dollars to the Lord as a college student. I was blessed to be able to give thousands of dollars to the Lord as a college student. Joyfully. 
Now, could those thousands of dollars have helped me in other ways as a college student? Sure. Trying to pay off college, trying to pay off a vehicle. Ate my share of ramen noodles. Ate my share of macaroni and cheese with no milk and no butter. Just water, just like ramen noodles. I mean, you got the little, little cheese packet. And yet, this is amazing. The more I would seek to give and say, God, thank you for how you've blessed, and, and maybe I made more than this, so, so let me increase my tithe, and let me, let me add some admissions, the more seemingly I would continue to get blessed of God. And it was just a cycle. And so I, I read here in Nehemiah chapter 12, and I see a bunch of people who have served faithfully. Man, they had some back-breaking hours, right? Rebuilding walls, rebuilding gates. They put their lives on hold to come and rebuild. And not only do they take time out, not only do they work, then they said, okay, God, we're going to make a commitment. We're going to regularly give. But on top of that, this day it says there were great sacrifices. There were certainly the actual sacrifices of the animals, but on top of that, they began to do what? Create these storerooms for all of the areas of giving. So these people, as they're trying to prepare for this rebuild, this refresh, they're engaged into some aspect of sacrifice. Now, what does that look like for you or I? Certainly we can give of ourselves, give of our time, give of our resources, give to help one another. Certain things we can have more of. Unfortunately, you and I can't really earn some extra hours on the clock. That would be great if we could, right? The extra hours are either later in the evening or earlier in the morning. But we've all got a, a finite amount of time. How are we using that time for the Lord? How are we using the, the resources that he's blessed us with? Their sacrifice Seems to be organized, seems to be specific, seems to be grateful, seems to be universal. It says that all Israel contributed. It's pretty incredible. In the midst of everything they've been through, it's not just, okay, I did my part and I'm done. They were continuing to sacrifice, knowing there's still more that's going to be done. Some ingredients Chapters 11 and 12, as chapter by chapter we're working our way through, we'll con conclude next week. But what do we see today? A handful of ingredients. They took part in willing participation, joyful celebration. They sought complete purity, and they took part in personal sacrifice. Mm -hmm.